Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having an on-the-ground update inside the war in Ukraine, also having an update on the struggle to save the African Cemetery in Maryland. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Sputnik News journalist and correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Happy to be here as always. Absolutely. And Wyatt, unfortunately, the U.S.-NATO proxy war in Ukraine is escalating and becoming more dangerous both for the parties involved and for the world. Uh, Most recently, we saw the bombing of the Kerch Bridge to Crimea, uh, something that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin called a terrorist act. Uh, He says it's carried out by Ukrainian special services and in retaliation of this, uh, Russia has carried out um, a wave of attacks in reportedly at least 14 regions in Ukraine, spanning uh, from Lviv to the west to Kharkiv in the east. And uh, Wyatt, you're there based in Ukraine uh, covering things uh, on the ground, and you've actually seen uh, some of this uh, violence uh, up close in a certain way. So I was hoping you could break down uh, just what has uh, happened here and how you see uh, uh, the conflict sort of uh, unfolding from this point. Absolutely. Well, to start off with, I I would clarify that uh, although some people may see the area that I am in as being Ukraine, that certainly does not seem to be the attitude by the authorities in Kiev, given the fact that uh, on Saturday I was uh, nearly struck by an artillery strike on my hotel that landed about 100 meters directly in front of me. I uh, watched a massive fireball erupt in front of me that went at least three stories high. Uh, Glass rained down all around me. The earth shook pretty tremendously. Uh, It was an extremely scary moment, Um, not something I would ever want to repeat. Um, But in some sense, as I understood later, I well, well, even before I I made it back to the hotel, I I kind of had to take about 90 seconds or so uh, to make sure that uh, we weren't going to be struck again. To get into my hotel, I had to run directly towards the scene of the strike. And uh, for those who aren't aware, the Ukrainian authorities are somewhat notorious for doing what's called a double tap or a follow up artillery strike where they tend to wait until civilians have gathered around the site of the wreckage and first responders have gathered there and then they attack that site again to take them out. Uh, So that was the concern back in my head. And I obviously um, wanted to be sure as best I could that it wasn't going to happen uh, to me. So I ended up waiting a a minute, minute and a half. I recorded the situation with my phone and then sprinted inside the hotel where I was uh, greeted at some point by one of the hotel security, I believe the head of hotel security, uh, who wanted to usher me into a bomb shelter where other guests and hotel staff uh, were waiting and seeking refuge, I, um, I felt 
safe enough, I thought, uh, just inside the hotel, and I wanted to be able to uh, record the aftermath uh, and report about what had just happened. So I uh, politely declined that offer, but then uh, managed to get a, a report from the scene of, of this devastation and uh, came back in and, and kind of decompressed and ended up just with other guests of the hotel and some of the hotel staff and sipped a little bit of whiskey to kind of calm our nerves and, and kind of um, in some ways kind of trauma bond over this pretty horrifying experience. I was told by one of them, welcome to Donetsk, you know, this, you survived your baptism. And, you know, this isn't, I should say, um, my first interaction necessarily with the Ukrainian regime just two weeks Ago, they placed me on their official hit list. They're called Miratvorets, and uh, that was kind of my first first interaction. But this was certainly my first physical interaction with the Kiev regime, and I feel very blessed to have survived it. Yeah, definitely. And then we're certainly glad that uh, you came out of everything okay, Wyatt. And I think what you're describing here is really important because it is a a narrative that is completely absent from uh, uh, the mainstream corporate press here in the United States. And I mean, beyond being absent, it's actually it's actually verboten. And uh, even though for all of this, uh, you know, pearl clutching in the West over so-called Russian uh, uh, disinformation, in reality, we're seeing uh, journalists like yourself and others being out and out targeted and put on kill list. That's the, the Miratovitz piece that you were um, uh, speaking to, a site that is curiously uh, not located in Ukraine, but in Langley, Virginia, um, as uh, uh, just sort of an example of what is actually happening. And, you know, from that, Wyatt, how do you situate uh, this incident into, you know, uh, a sort of these other unfolding dynamics in uh, the war in Ukraine, because, you know, I mentioned the issue of uh, the bombing of the Crimea Bridge and the subsequent um, uh, uh, Russian attacks in Ukraine. But even that uh, followed the uh, referendum in four regions in Ukraine that all voted um, to actually join and become a part of Russia. And the response from the Ukrainian government of Volodymyr Zelensky was to basically officially declare that there could be no uh, peace uh, negotiations with uh, the Russian government as long as Vladimir Putin was at its head. And so it really does feel like we're in a serious moment and, and a dangerous moment. And what's most striking about it to me is that uh, 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 the majority of people in the U.S. and the West are either completely unaware of these dynamics or uh, also completely unaware of the implications that it has for them. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely. As you said, uh, reporting the facts on the ground, if they could be perceived as sympathetic to Russia or somehow detracting from the narrative coming from the Ukrainian regime, is uh, verboten. And and even beyond that, in some senses, I, I, will, I, I wasn't going to say that uh, the attacks on Donetsk are entirely ignored, because sometimes Western papers do report on them. They just report on them with the implication that Russia is the one bombing Donetsk. Russia is somehow the one bombing the people who uh, have been begging it for support for over eight years. And obviously it's a total lie, but we live in such a kind of Looney Tunes, Alice in Wonderland style cartoon world of disinformation 
that uh, many people do not know. And uh, in some cases, if you try to tell them, this kind of cognitive dissonance kicks in and they are simply unable to, uh, to respond to you rationally and kind of dismiss everything you're saying as Russian uh, propaganda, uh, regardless of whether it's true or not. And I would say that uh, this is kind of part of the reason that I came here, by the way, uh, that the fact of the matter is that there is no one that really wants to cover this aside from a number of uh, journalists. There are plenty of Russian journalists here, but in terms of Western journalists, I can count them on one hand. Uh, it's a great shame because <clears throat> if the mainstream media journalists did come here, uh, they would, uh, I think, almost be compelled to report the truth for once. And that uh, I think that possibility or probability is something that they want to avoid at all costs, which, you know, is, is why I, I wanted to come here, why I felt compelled to come here to uh, tell the truth that those other big guys are refusing to. And it is a, an interesting moment, an alarming moment, certainly, uh, with what you, you noted, the, the Russian responses, the overwhelming Russian responses to that uh, apparent suicide bombing of the Crimean Bridge, uh, the Kerch Bridge, uh, we certainly do not seem to have an off-ramp for the escalation in hostilities. There's no desire from the regime in Kiev to engage in negotiations, as you noted, until there is some regime change in Russia, something that is extremely unlikely to happen and honestly could only really ever happen if, if somehow, I think, if Vladimir Putin were to lose the war somehow, I think that that would really be the only way that he would uh, be regime changed successfully. Um, and you have no desire really from the United States or from the United Kingdom to pursue negotiations. In fact, we know from Ukrainian media sources that in April, when uh, Vladimir Putin and, and, and Vladimir Zelensky were uh, arranging possible negotiations that uh, Boris Johnson showed up in Kiev and told them in no uncertain terms that while you Ukrainians may be ready to negotiate, we, the UK, are not. So uh, they sabotaged negotiations in April. Um, they have not given the Ukrainian regime permission to negotiate anytime since, and that's what it is, permission. Uh, that is very much the relationship there, one of puppet and puppet master, not of independent government that makes decisions on its own, as this uh, anecdote illustrates, I think, pretty well. Um, so I think really kind of all of this coinciding, obviously, too, with the appointment of a new top commander of the Russian Federation forces, Sergei Sorovikin, a man who was renowned for his anti-ISIS operations, and, and a man who uh, reportedly said that uh, the morning yesterday, when these uh, massive strikes began to hit, military and energy infrastructure in Ukraine. Uh, he said that uh, for the enemies of Russia, their mourning does not begin with coffee, reportedly uh, a statement coming from him. So you see kind of a, a, a very um, aggressive uh, resistance to what has happened with that bridge in Crimea. It was certainly treated as a serious escalation. And now we see attacks on uh, Russian energy infrastructure in Belgorod, which is another pretty big red line. These attacks that are going onto Russian Federation territory. I think the Russian forces feel that they have 
no alternative but to respond to that with, uh, you know, respond to that with an escalation of their own. So, um, yes, as you noted, it certainly doesn't seem like peace negotiations are on the table anytime soon. Yeah. And I want to reiterate something that you just mentioned, Wyatt, because, again, it's something that is 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 lost and really has been kept is perhaps the uh, a better way to describe it from the people of the U.S. and the West. Number one, uh, the fact that it was the U.S. and NATO that instigated and facilitated this uh, invasion to begin with after uh, constantly um, denying and rejecting uh, Russia's uh, security concerns. Russia has its red line like anybody. But Washington seemed to take the attitude that uh, uh, Russia is not allowed to have red lines on top of the fact, as you noted, that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. uh, very purposefully and intentionally intervened to scuttle peace negotiations between the Russian and Ukrainian governments. So what that means is that what we're seeing right now did not have to happen and and only is really happening because of the facilitation and instigation of a U.S. and Western imperialism. But yet uh, what we hear in the U.S. and the West from the governments and the corporate media outlets is the is, it's this complete like funhouse mirror reflection of reality that the American people are being told is is to their benefit. But in truth, is actually just pushing us ever closer to out and out nuclear war here in uh, or here on this earth. And that's just on the one end. And it's also happening on another end uh, vis-a-vis the U.S. saber rattling with uh, China through its ongoing uh, uh, orientation towards Taiwan and the violation of the one China policy. And so to me, it, it, it's clear who's sort of uh, the real culprit here in what we're seeing, not only in terms of Russia and Ukraine, but also in terms of a lot of different dynamics on the world stage. And so I think the sooner that the people of the U.S. and the West become aware of this, uh, the sooner that we can organize to actually stop it. Because, I mean, absent a real peace movement and absent a real organized anti-imperialist movement, why it's hard to see how humanity can be pulled back from the brink of oblivion. Totally. And I mean, to be honest, I don't have a whole lot of faith that the solution for this conflict will come from the United States. I think really, if anything, the the main possibility at this point is that the people of Europe have to kind of stand up and say enough is enough. We're not going to be led around by the nose by the United States anymore. Um, that's clearly been the kind of relationship that the United States has had with, for example, Germany. And, uh, you, you know, I should I should back up and say that, you know, the United States, we in the U.S. are very interdependent. We are not very interdependent with Russia. Um, we import very small amounts of our energy supply from Russia. Um, we are not nearly as dependent in terms of agriculture. And this is not the case in Europe. Uh, working people in Europe are suffering tremendously uh, the greatest number of French businesses in 25 years uh, went out of business uh, th- this year so far. Um, year is not over yet. Uh, we expect that this winter is going to be terrible. We see people with energy bills hitting in the thousands of euros just in a month, um, and it's only going to get worse. 
And meanwhile, we have this kind of relationship with the U.S. and Germany, where very clearly after uh, multiple threats by sitting President Joe Biden to uh, end, quote unquote, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, if Russia, quote unquote, invades, uh, we saw basically exactly that. The United States really is the only entity that has both the means, the motive and the opportunity to carry out this kind of crime. Certainly the Russian Federation forces uh, would not have been able to uh, to maneuver any kind of military hardware into arguably one of the world's most closely surveilled uh, uh, maritime passages um, during the, one of the world's most militarized moments. Uh, that was the opportunity was certainly not there. Um, but of course, for the United States, that uh, they kind of call the shots in NATO. They could certainly do whatever they want. And and I want to add, you know. When 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 Merkel, for example, was prime minister of Germany, she at the very least was willing to kind of stand up for the interests of the people of Germany. And she, uh, I think, would have reacted somewhat differently when she found out that her the head of her national intelligence apparatus had been passing along secrets to the NSA, secrets on uh, the EU commission, on the French government and even on German industrial titan Siemens. Uh, kind of the crown jewel of uh, German industry, uh, she fired him, right? He was forced to step down. Now you have this kind of guy, Olaf Scholz, who stands on stage as Biden openly threatens his energy infrastructure, um, and he stands there meekly and doesn't say a word. Uh, unfortunately, that's kind of a typical attitude of much of the European ruling class. And at this point, it's kind of on the working people of Europe. They're were, they were going to have to stand up and say enough is enough. And I think we're already starting to see that. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of faith that this will happen necessarily in the U.S. just because we're not as affected. And I think we are in some ways a little bit more brainwashed, um, as sad as that might sound. Yeah, I mean, without question, uh, uh, we've been seeing a protest in Europe uh, uh, about this issue. And uh, I think it's true that the consciousness around it is uh, definitely different in the United States. But uh, this is a task uh, for organizers and a duty that we must take up, particularly uh, given our position here inside the beating heart of world imperialism. Well, we thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio but it can watch the DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are having an update on the movement to save the historic Moses Macedonia African Cemetery in Maryland. And we are very happy to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Marshall Coleman Adebayo, president of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. Dr. Coleman Adebayo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Absolutely. And Dr. Coleman Adebayo, of course, we've been following closely the issue of the uh, African cemetery there in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, as it continues to be under threat by uh, developers who literally want to build on top of the bodies of enslaved Africans. And uh, recently uh, there was a hearing inside of Maryland's second highest court uh, as it pertains to this issue. So I was hoping you could uh, just give us the latest uh, about what's happening with the struggle around the cemetery and uh, how things are unfolding from there. Sure. Thank you. And thank you again for having me back on the show. Yeah, we, we continue to make history and we continue to make, you know, noise and, and good trouble. Um, and so you're right. On October 6th, we went to the Maryland Court of, uh, of uh, Special Appeals, which is the second highest court in Maryland, um, uh, to defend uh, Judge Carla Smith's ruling, um, which which um, denied HLC, the Housing Opportunities Commission, um, the right to sell um, the bodies of our ancestors and the land in which they are buried to a to a white private investor. Um, and, uh, called Charger Ventures, which is a local Bethesda, uh, private in- investment, uh, corporation here. Um, and I, I just wanted everyone to know this because this is super important. The Housing Opportunities Commission is a quasi-private, um, institution or commission. It is the institution where poor people are supposed to go who need, or people, you know, who need low-income housing. And instead of focusing their attention on providing housing to these people, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, fighting against a small community group that does the African Cemetery um, to stop the desecration of, of Moses Cemetery. They own a piece of Moses Cemetery um, called Parcel 177. Once they stole the land from the black community, they essentially parceled up the land and gave it little numbers. And so, uh, and they divided the, the, the land between themselves. Um, and so the, the land that we're caught, that, that is under examination by the court right now is called Parcel 177. But it's important for folks to know they're using your money to, to fight against the community. They're using taxpayer dollars. This is not coming out of the pockets of the commissioners. This is coming out of our pockets. So they're using our money to fight against us. And they're paying these lawyers extravagant amounts of money now to fight against the community. And so the issue before the court is a really simple one. It's very, very, very simple. And that is, and that is whether or not when developers want to, um, you know, buy land containing bodies. And let's be honest, the only bodies that are being sold are either Native American bodies or they're black bodies. Let's be real clear about that. So that when, when developers want to buy land that contains black bodies, first they must um, 
They must inform the families that they're about to dig up their loved ones and take them to a landfill or take them to a laboratory to do God knows what or whatever they're going to do with these bodies. At first, they're supposed to inform the families that we have now bought your mother or we bought your father or we bought your son or your daughter, and we are going to take your son and daughter someplace and we're going to do X, Y, and Z with them. Um, And they're supposed to contact the court and say, we need permission because we're about to dig up these black bodies. And we need permission from the court to to dig up these bodies and take them someplace. So HLC said, no, 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 you can't do that. HLC said, once we sell the land, the owner gets to do whatever they want to do with these black bodies. And the families and the courts have nothing to do with it, nothing to say about it. Once we sell the land, those bodies convey to the owner of the land. And then the owner is free to exercise their rights as the owner of those bodies, to do whatever they want to do. Now, if this sounds strangely familiar, it is because between 1619 and 1865, that's what they were doing to live black people. That's what they they were saying, you know, Marsha, Sean, you know, you know, John, you are my property, and I can do whatever I want to do with you. I can... I can I can force you to work from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. I can rape you. I can murder you. And there is nothing that the courts or your family can do about it. Well, now we have the we have a corollary here, and it sounds unbelievable. And I know people just sort of open their mouths, but I would encourage everyone to read the latest article of Daily Beast. Because the Daily Beast article nailed this issue harder than anyone else has nailed this issue right now. That this is about selling black bodies in the 21st century. This is about selling bodies in the 21st century. This means that there is no limit to capital at this point. That capital can buy any and everything. And that there is nothing that the families and the courts or society can do about it. Because once you sell those bodies, they belong to the owner. It is an auction of black bodies. That's what's going on. That is what is before the courts. And that is what we have to stop yeah, and Dr. Coleman Adebayo, what you're laying out is precisely what makes the African cemetery struggle there in Maryland so rich and important because it shows on the one hand uh, uh, the, the direct connection, this inextricable link between uh, capitalism and white supremacy. And also it, it, it is situated within a broader history of uh, uh, slavery and dehumanization, which of course was happening all across this country and indeed uh, uh, there in Bethesda, which once upon a time was a, a thriving black community. And so for these developers to want to build on top of this gravesite really is just continuing uh, the dehumanization and the brutality and just the complete inhumanity uh, waged against the African people in that part of Maryland as part and parcel as the oppression that we've faced in this country for centuries. This is about genocide. Let's be really clear about this. This is about genocide. It has been. Genocide is, I, I keep saying that genocide should be a verb and not a noun. I mean, because, because it is a process. It is an ongoing process. And one of the ways that you dehumanize people 
is by destroying the very roots of those people, which is which look the Nazis used to desecrate Jewish graves. Why did the Nazis take time out of their busy schedules to 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 desecrate Jewish graves? Because it was a form of erasing the Jewish people, erasing them from their roots, erasing them from their history, erasing them from from humanity. That is what's happening here in Bethesda, Maryland. And every single politician in Maryland and Montgomery County, they all know about this. They all know about it. But how many did you see in Annapolis the other day? You didn't see anyone, not a single Maryland politician showed up in Annapolis to say, we will fight you tooth and nail to stop the sale of our relatives, our ancestors, our mothers. We will not allow this. They dare not open their mouths because developers have bought them lock and stock, stock, lock and stock and barrel completely. And so, you know, we even have one politician, you know, who took money um, from, from these developers and, you know, and, you know, when I called him to say, give it back, give the money back. This is blood money. Give it back. He said, no, I can't do that because, you know, my development team raised the money and I set the bad precedent. I mean, we do not have one moral voice coming out of elected officials to say we cannot repeat the Dred Scott decision because, quite frankly, that is what is really being decided here is Dred Scott. I mean, remember Dred Scott was, was you know, was, was an African who was taken to, you know, I think it was to Ohio and didn't want to go back into barbarism, to European barbarism in the South, and he went to court. And instead of the court offering him an avenue of freedom, um, the county court, what did they say that black people, well, they didn't call us black in those days, Negroes or Africans, um, had no rights that a white man was bound to respect? What is the difference between that decision in 1857 and what we are considering right now in Annapolis, Maryland? That black people, you don't even control your own bodies. And if you don't control your own bodies and you don't control that of your parents and your children and anyone else, then you have no rights. You have no rights. And that's what's at stake right now in Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah. And Dr. I was hoping you could say more about uh, uh, some of these bought off politicians in this issue, because I know here in D.C., which is not that far from where you all are over in Bethesda, Maryland, without question, uh, the mayor and other officials are, you know, in cahoots and quite close with a lot of these wealthy developers. Um, and in this way, this is what uh, makes the process of gentrification and displacement possible and who is uh, displaced and priced out of the city. It's the city's working class, which in the case of D.C. is uh, uh, largely black. And so, you know, uh, uh, now we're sort of raising, I think, also the issue of uh, class and race as well as we see uh, uh, officials in the pockets of these same people um, uh, that want to carry this thing through. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down what that dynamic has looked like within this uh, struggle to save the cemetery. Look, white supremacy capitalism has, which is the way I define the economic system here, is white supremacy capitalism. Um, 
it hasn't changed. I mean, remember, white supremacy capitalism obviously was built on the bodies of black people. And the, the, the fundamental structure of that form of capitalism, you know, has not changed structurally since we were brought here to lay the foundation um, for this very interesting form of capitalism in this country. Um, but it's mutated. It has mutated over the, I mean, it's, it's one of these viruses, quite frankly, that has this incredible ability to mutate depending upon material conditions that, that are presented. And so now we actually have black politicians who have a vested interest in the continuation of this kind of barbaric system built on on capital, on, on in this case, on, on black bodies. And so... Um, so in Montgomery County, we do not have one black politician, one white politician. I mean, they'll call me and, and they'll hum on the phone about how horrible it is that what's going on at Moses. But will they open their mouths in public and say anything? Absolutely not, because they know that their their ability to raise money, their ability to um, to navigate the system within the Democratic you know, infrastructure here would be compromised if they if they truly confront the issues of of uh, if they truly confront developers and the developer industrial complex here in Bethesda, Maryland. So they dare not open their mouths. And one of the one of I think the challenges we have is to maybe put forth some candidates who are committed to the people and not to capital. Um, you know, in some of these elections, even if it's just to put that idea on on the stage, you know, as Noam Chomsky talks about, you know, people versus profit. Um, you know, we need to put that on the, on out there so that people understand exactly the choices that are being made. So you have the class distinction, certainly. Um, although I think in the River Road community, the, the class distinctions were blurred because of the white supremacy. You know, regardless of whether you were, you know, a well-to-do black or you were a black who, who happened to, you know, spend your day in the field, um, you were wiped out on River Road. You were totally wiped out. This is a scene of a crime here. Bethesda, Maryland is a scene of a crime. People have to be real clear about this. This was a scene of genocide here. For 400 years, for at least 350 years, Africans were being murdered. Right on River Road, as you know, as, you know, and I, I keep thinking that, you know, it would, we should have some signage here. This was a scene of a crime. This was a, this, there's a lot of blood under the soil here in Bethesda. And it's one of the reasons why the, the politicians and the, the people in power, uh, don't want to discuss this because it interferes with, you know, their public relations, you know, uh, outlook of Bethesda being the most prosperous and richest community, um, one of the most prosperous and richest communities in the world. But it's also one of the bloodiest communities in the world. And that's what they're trying to hide. And one of the, I think one of the points that comes out of our latest book is the fact that the, the people to a large extent, a large percentage of the people who were murdered 
in on what they call plantations. We call them death camps on River Road were children. They were children. And those children were abused in ways that we can't even talk about on the radio. And when they died, when they died, their bodies were tossed into a mass grave right off of River Road. The the Daily Beast article is the first article that had the courage to talk about those children and to talk about the blood that still lies in that mass grave right off of River Road. The first article that had the courage to do it. But now the sound barrier has been broken. And we need to talk about those children and what happened to those children on River Road and why every politician at this point, I would love to see a politician step out on this. Would love to see it. But why those children must be recognized, why they must have dignity, why that land is so sacred, not just to the black community here in Bethesda, but to black people all over the world. Those were our children who were kidnapped from West and Central Africa, brought to River Road, who were raped and murdered, raped and murdered on River Road, and then their bodies were dumped into a mass grave right off of River Road. Now, that is not the parcel of land that is under consideration before the court right now. The parcel of land that, but we have to know about this history, and we have to stop these people from desecrating the graves of these children. But the parcel of land that we're talking about is adjacent to that land, and those Africans who were buried in what is now called parcel 175 were the were the descendants of the children who were buried in parcel two four two right off of river road and 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 their bodies lie under a parking lot where dogs and cats and cars are parked on them right now as we speak right now as we speak, and this is the parcel of land where a judge has declared. This is a cemetery. And one of the things she said in her brief was that they, these people were not able to control, I forgot exactly how she, she put it, but basically they weren't able to buy land in their lifetimes. They weren't, well, that's, she, she said that they weren't able, that they were, the, they were the targets of so much abuse and so much disrespect in their life. At least they should be able to own the, the, the soil that surrounds them in death. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Coleman Adebayo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guides for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garoppa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Great to be back. Absolutely. And Chris, I wanted to kick things off today by talking about the uh, relationship between tech and geopolitics, as uh, we've recently seen some concern from CIA Director William Burns that China is uh, defeating uh, uh, America in a kind of tech war and how uh, the issue of tech itself uh, seems to have become a, a field for geopolitical conflict. And I was hoping you could help us uh, break down uh, just why that is and what should we understand about these dynamics? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I want to you know, point people to a really fantastic article by uh, Jeremy Kuzmarov, who's actually the managing editor of Covert Action magazine, uh, where he talks about, uh, you know, the CIA director, William Burns, and, uh, you know, Burns' perspective on what China is doing to the U.S. in the so-called tech war, which is winning. Um, you know, the U.S. obviously has been, you know, engaged in this new Cold War against China, you know, under Trump, it was trade wars, but there has been um, a lot of effort to remove Chinese tech from the U.S. as well as from the hands of European allies. We've seen that uh, the the State Department, the U.S. government, and you know, other entities in the U.S. government have been recommending that uh, U.S. companies and agencies, uh, as well as European allies, don't use 5G technologies, for example, from Huawei. Um, and instead rely on U.S. or, uh, you know, friendlier Western European uh, uh, companies. The problem there is China is well ahead of the U.S. in stuff like 5G, in the Internet of Things. And that's because they have, you know, placed such a significant uh, value on growing the Chinese economy and growing the internal, uh, you know, uh, investment in technology uh, in order to be, you know, be able to be competitive on the world stage, as you know, they have every right to do. Well, the U.S. is concerned about this because China has gone from, you know, a place that just manufactured goods to now a place that is creating new technologies, perfecting them, improving them, uh, and implementing them on a world stage, not just in Europe, but also, you know, through many, many partnerships in Africa. So this has got the U.S. government very, very concerned. The CIA director, William Burns, uh, former F you know, FBI director Chris Wray has famously said that China's systems are insecure and that we cannot trust them in the U.S. And they have never shown any proof of that. The only reason that they are so-called insecure is that they come from China, which the U.S. government does not trust and constantly works to undermine. I just want to point this out, too, because I think this is a really important thing that has never been discussed, is that Marco Rubio of Florida has actually said Huawei is, has, performs technological imperialism um, by, you know, selling its products to other countries, I guess. Uh, you know, it's not really clear what technological imperialism is, but really the, the, the hubris of, you know, anyone in the United States to accuse China of imperialism of any kind is just outrageous. 
Yeah, that's a fact. And speaking of imperialism, that raises another aspect of this that I think is worth uh, noting, Chris, and that uh, Jeremy Kuzmarov points out in his piece on Covert Action Bulletin that you were messaging. We know that historically, when we talk about um, uh, the United States and its relationship to China and Chinese people, uh, both in China and those who migrate to the United States, there's a particular kind of sort of uh, uh, anti-Chinese uh, racist xenophobia that we see uh, come out all the way up, I think, into the highest levels of government. And it also comes out in policy. And so how do we see that uh, show up as it pertains to the technological uh, element, if you will, of uh, Washington's new Cold War with Beijing? Yeah, sure. Jeremy Bruno points out this uh, sort of reverse brain drain that's occurring. You know, it, it used to be the case that Many Chinese students would come to the U.S. or, you know, Chinese scientists would come to the U.S. for jobs, you know, for study, for job, to, you know, stay here, maybe not go back for a while. And that is changing. And in part, not just because of the, uh, you know, accelerated level of work that is being done at Chinese companies and universities, but also because of the anti-Chinese racism that is happening in the United States. I mean, there have been many Chinese scientists who have been investigated, arrested, harassed, you know, just because they have affiliations with a Chinese university, not even the Chinese government itself necessarily, but a Chinese, you know, university or company. Um, and, you know, it's actually people have been arrested, uh, you know, and, and investigated under those suspicions. I think it's really, you know, unfortunate because what we should have, Ideally, we should have a world where scientists and inventors and engineers and everyone collaborate, right? Where, you know, any country in the world is able to work with another country to collaborate on technology and those geographical national boundaries become less significant. But that is not what the U.S. is letting happen because it's so afraid of the supremacy that China has shown itself to be capable of. Uh, due to its centralized planning and its economy. Yeah, and that's important to note that uh, uh, socialism in China is uh, directly responsible for what we're seeing on this front. And uh, you raised something that, that I think is also important, Chris, about how really all of us would benefit from a, a cooperation on these issues. But um, as, you know, Joe Biden and other elements of the U.S. government point out, they've been, you know, advancing this idea of competition with China, almost as if uh, Washington has no choice but to uh, in, engage in it, which obviously is part and parcel of uh, the U.S. government's project to stem the tide uh, of China's rise at uh, just about every level, wherever it can hand with uh, what I would you know, describe as perhaps not a, a great deal of success. And the reason I raise this is because I think it's just an example of how uh, imperialism can actually uh, keep people, uh, those of us in this country and indeed people around the world, from being able to enjoy the benefits of this kind of technological uh, advancement. Because on the one hand, uh, we have a party that is hell-bent on uh, being in an adversarial uh, uh, a relationship with the other. You know what I mean? And so I think it reveals a lot about these dynamics and these relationships and how really uh, uh, not only what we miss out on because of imperialism, but also what we stand to lose in the future if uh, uh, this kind of uh, orientation continues. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think we can just look at any of the advances that have been made 
you know, just let's say over the past 50, 60 years, uh, let's call it 70 years um, in, you know, in technology. I mean, just think, you know, the Internet, microwaves, literally anything that's happened. And much of it has been as a result, you know, unfortunately, I guess, of, of military spending and military investment. Um, and that is one of the reasons that the U.S. uses in order to say, well, we need to have our, you know, a very significant military budget. It has to be a really high military budget. But I think that is that is, you know, not necessarily the case. What if we had, you know, investment in technology for technology's sake, technology for society's sake, where it was not just an accident that a certain, you know, develop, technological development is made uh, because there was a military application, but because there's a human application. And then we take that and we say, okay, we're going to open this up. We're going to work collectively with other nations. We're not going to be spying on you and uh, banning your your products and your services, Huawei, TikTok, whoever ZTE, whoever it is, uh, you know, we're going to encourage cooperation to you know investigate new technologies, quantum computing, AI, five G, whatever the next thing is that we you know right now aren't even able to to consider. Um, that would be such an amazing thing. And forget that you even take that into the medical sphere, Sean. You know, where China had its own vaccines very quickly for COVID-19. Um, you know, what if, glo- what if the, the global sphere had been able to work together on these vaccines and it wasn't based on, you know, these geopolitical rivalries that are happening and that, you know, for the very large part, the U.S. is responsible for fanning the flames of these conflicts. So I think when we're looking at the way the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, you know, really the entire U.S. state are looking at China and certainly other countries who are developing technology, developing medicine, developing systems of education, what we should be doing is considering why is it that they're being viewed as a threat? Are they really our enemies? The truth is no, they are not. Yeah, definitely. Technology for the sake of humanity, I think, is is an important concept to advance here. And uh, switching gears a a little bit, Chris, I also want to touch on this issue about a new law in the European Union that would force uh, iPhones to adopt a particular kind of uh, uh, charging apparatus. Uh, Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, well, you know, ever since the iPhone came out and the iPod before it, Apple has used these non-standard cables. If you remember back when the first iPod came out, it had that giant called the dock connector. It was like, you know, it was pretty wide. You had to, you know, get a special cable to plug it in. Even now, the iPhone has the lightning adapter instead of the USB-C that pretty much everyone else has been using. And so as a result, um, you know, it's, you have to have this special cable from Apple. And of course, they charge a premium to get a replacement or you even get one in the first place. But the EU has legislation now that says that uh, it's going to require that all cameras, tablets, phones, and stuff like that come with a USB-C connector. So standardizing the how you plug your device in to charge. It seems like a very small thing, but it really helps, you know, so that now you can, you don't have to worry about like you're in the car, right? Oh, who's got an Apple charger? Who's got an Android charger? You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> you won't have to in the EU, at least, uh, for those new devices. I mean, I think this is a really fantastic development. And, you know, it is. I believe it will come to the U.S. just because it'll be cheaper for Apple to just have USB-C, a standardized, industry-standardized connect- connector, not one of its own making, on its 
devices uh, rather than saying, well, we're just going to have this, you know, the USB-C in the EU and uh, we'll have a keep our lightning device, you know, connector uh, in the U.S. Yeah. And, and the politics of chargers is interesting to me. And that may sound, you know, a kind of a funny thing to say, but I just feel like it's part and parcel of how uh, technology like phones and uh, tablets and such things are produced and what it means in terms of how cop, uh, how capital operates in the tech world. I mean, I've definitely, like a lot of people, I'm sure, been through situations where I didn't have my charger with me and I find one that fits. And my phone will tell me, hey, you know, this is not the right kind of charger. You need to find uh, the right one. Or if it does work, then it does it. It charges extremely slowly. And so how how does the whole charger issue sort of factor in, into that, Chris? Because it doesn't seem like an accident. Yeah, certainly. You have a number of different standards bodies. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the companies that are maybe part of those bodies or maybe not and or have their own interests in various parts of what cables are going to be used and what adapters are going to be used and you know apple loves to own its entire ecosystem right apple loves to say you know everything we have you know it's proprietary you know you can only get it through us or through an official partner um you know and and it works better that way they say okay make sure you get an official apple or apple certified cable well that's you can still get an official, you know, a USB-C certified cable that matches the spec that the USB consortium has put out um, and, you know, has been tested, just doesn't have to come from Apple. You know, so there, yeah, there's a lot of political, you know, economic factors that play into the decisions that companies make about even what charger they're going to put on their phone. So hopefully we are getting very close to the end of that that chaos. Yeah, yeah, hopefully so. And, you know, uh, shifting focus to uh, Twitter, there's been some developments in terms of uh, around the issue of uh, screenshots and how, you know, Twitter uh, asks people to share these sorts of things. Uh, what's happening uh, with Twitter on this piece? Oh, yeah. I mean, I noticed this actually over the weekend. I went to take a, a screenshot of a tweet to, to send to somebody who's not on Twitter. And it popped, Twitter took the screenshot, but it popped up a little message. It said, share tweet instead with a button that says copy link. And this is very interesting. So first of all, yes, your apps on your phone can know when you're taking a screenshot. We don't think about that a lot. But the apps, you know, whether you're on an Android or an iPhone, uh, you take a screenshot, the phone sends a little notification to your app that says, hey, do you want to do something about this? They took a screenshot. <laughs> um, so we don't really consider the fact that they can do that and that, that that can be tracked, right? But the other thing is, why is Twitter pushing people to copy a link instead of sharing a screenshot? And there's really two primary reasons here. One is that if you send people to the Twitter website or the Twitter app, they're going to see more ads rather than just sharing a screenshot that they can just look at in their text message, and that's that. So they're going to see more ads. Uh, whether it's you know the just a tweet ad or a video ad uh, on the Twitter platform, the second is that Twitter recently, and I, I've written about this elsewhere, Twitter has started adding a tag to its links to track who is sending links to who. So if I send you a link, Sean, from Twitter, it's not just go check out this tweet. It's actually go check out this tweet. Oh, and we know that Chris sent it to you. So then you open it in your Twitter account, and they know that I sent you a link, and you opened it. So 
that's the other thing is that they want to start building up networks, right? They want to start having a sense not just of who's interacting with who on Twitter, but who's interacting with who off Twitter and sending links to each other. So who do you know that maybe Twitter, you know, doesn't already have that association or affiliation uh, recorded? So that's a very interesting thing that they want to do. And reading networks can allow them to then have a sense of, okay, I send Sean you know, links to tweets a lot. We don't really interact on Twitter so much, let's say. But maybe Sean's interested in the same things I'm interested in. So let's show you know, similar ads to both of them. That's really what that part comes down to. Yeah, and, and that's deep. And I think it sort of reveals how uh, ultimately these tech companies, even though we can use these platforms for free, like uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, that we should remember that we are, in fact, uh, uh, the product and, and our involvement in that is uh, a big part of their bottom line. And so for Twitter to take that step to try to ensure that they can get just that little bit more of uh, engagement, get that little bit more of data so that they can get that, you know, those ads like you're talking about, <laughs> I think just says a lot about their whole model. But we thank you so much as always, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our show at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Twitter and Facebook.com slash B-A-M necessary. And as always about this time, we are broadcasting live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And, uh, I am happy to be joined for the hour today by by any means necessary producer Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And Josh, of course, uh, uh, an issue that has been getting a lot of attention over the last few days, the 
issue of uh, uh, L.A. City uh, Council member Nuri Martinez, who was uh, recorded uh, basically going on like a racist, uh, <clears throat> racist, homophobic, uh, bigoted uh, a tirade in, in, in a, a private meeting alongside city council members Kevin DeLeon, uh, Gil Cedillo, and L.A. County Federation of Labor President Ron Herrera. Now, the main focus of her uh, vitriol was council member Mike Bonin or Mike Bonin. I'm not sure how to say his name. Now, uh, Mike Bonin is, uh, this is a gay white man. And, and she referred to him as quote, a little B and also as quote, the fourth black member of uh, the city council. Also when discussing district attorney Gascon, she said, F that guy, he's with the blacks. Now, Mike Bonin, who I mentioned a moment ago, the council member, he has an 18-year-old adopted, excuse me, an 8-year-old eight, adopted black son who Nuri Martinez referred to as a changuito or a monkey, saying in this conversation, quote, they're raising him like a little white kid. I was like, this kid needs a beatdown. Like, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. And then after that, she concludes saying, quote, so anyways, getting back to redistricting. And at this point, the clip ends. Uh, she also uh, went on to make jokes uh, about a Mexican immigrants and calling Oaxacan people, quote, a uh, little short, dark people. And, you know, this uh, uh, quite naturally, as we've seen, has uh, raised a lot of controversy, uh, protest and things like that. And Martinez released a statement saying in part, quote, this has been one of the most difficult times of my life, and I recognize this is entirely of my own making. At this moment, I need to take a leave of absence and take some time to have an honest and heartfelt conversation with my family, my constituents, and community leaders. I am so sorry to the residents of Council District 6, my colleagues, and the city of Los Angeles. Now, uh, previously, uh, Nuri Martinez was uh, the council president, so she stepped down as president, I believe, yesterday but ridiculously it's still on the council and I'm honestly not sure what kind of conversation you need to have with your family like you just need to leave which I think is what uh, a lot of people are pushing for in this moment. Now Josh I think um, a lot of people may be taken aback by this because you know LA is sort of it's presented and I think people think of it as a very liberal or progressive sort of city. But, I mean, there's a deep history of racism just in that city to say nothing of the history of the state of California itself. And so, I mean, uh, I think what's striking about this and what uh, is a, a, a sort of real reminder for me is the fact that these are the sorts of conversations that happen all the time behind closed doors. And we know that they do. We don't always get to hear the recordings, but we know that they happen, particularly when we see the consequences of a lot of these uh, uh, policies. And so, you know, for me, it's just sort of a real reminder about how so often in this country and under this system, uh, the power uh, over people's lives oftentimes, and perhaps more often than not, rests squarely in the hands of these uh, reactionary racist types. Absolutely, Sean. You know, it's 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 you know, this this uh, these comments are let, let, let's let's be clear. These are sick. I mean, on multiple levels. I mean, I mean, 
I mean, this particularly this comment, I was like, this kid needs a beatdown. I think that one in particular, like just I just find like particularly striking. You're talking about hitting a child. You're talking about uh, committing violence on a child. That's 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 really sick. And you're right, Sean. Um, imagine what we don't hear. Imagine what we what we what kind of things we uh, we don't hear in like the the halls of power where these uh, where these people live. Like if this is, I mean, this is just scratching the surface of of the uh, the sick sick stuff that's going on uh, behind closed doors. And I mean, to to bring it to like a a broader point, there are plenty of politicians who uh, will say, I guess, what's supposed to be like uh, like a clouded like curtain. Uh, veiled racism <laughs> about uh, other people, uh, usually uh, for uh, usually for the purpose of justifying war and uh, and and uh, destruction on other people's countries, they'll say these like veiled racist uh, remarks on it, and so uh, and then in public, in public, um, on public remarks. So uh, just imagine the kind of things that people like this are saying uh, behind closed doors. It's really, I mean, it's really just disturbing. Sean, I really don't know what to say because there's there's so much that's going on in this uh, particular uh, story out of L.A. I don't know uh, if you had any time to read uh, some of the coverage on it from the L.A. Times, but uh, this particular recording was in a conversation about the redistricting process of L.A. City Council. And when I when I read that when I when I read that story, I I my mind immediately I went to this. It's just it's a weird idea of a patronage system almost in redistricting an ethnic patronage system uh, where certain people get uh, certain people of like certain races get certain seats and others get uh, other seats. And so it's it just I, I'm almost at a loss for words, honestly, about it, because we uh, see a lot of the same uh, stuff in an effort to uh, to diminish the power of people of color and others uh, in what is already a facade of a democracy. Absolutely. And we're also happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book, Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And John, we were just discussing this issue in Los Angeles uh, centered around uh, city council member Nuri Martinez, who made just uh, a series of racist, homophobic and uh, bigoted um, uh, comments to uh, some of her uh, colleagues. And this was recorded, I believe, originally uh, released on Reddit and uh, quickly made its way online. Um, You know, Martinez released, you know, a kind of uh, typical kind of mealy mouth statement, stepped down as uh, council president, but is still uh, on the council with many people calling for her uh, uh, resignation. And so just wondering uh, how this issue is striking you. Oh, I, I this story is one of the biggest I've heard in terms of its uh, 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 how it reflects on the larger national conversation. This is a, a stunning story. Um, what you have here, as far as I understand it, is um, uh, these politically connected leaders in Los Angeles, a very diverse city. And what they're doing is they're auditioning for whiteness, right? There is a material value to being white. And as I I understand it, all of the people who are involved in this conversation, including the the LA City Council president, the head of the LA Labor Federation, I believe they're all white Latinos. Now, um, if that is the case, 
what you have are people who are clearly auditioning. They're choosing a side and they're saying, you know, uh, and they and they identify being white as being critical of blackness. Right. Think about what this woman said. She said she said um, uh, uh, the president said that she wanted to do violence on this two year old black boy. I mean, that's just extraordinary. I've never in my life wanted to do violence on a two year old of any color. Right. And so this is just to me an extraordinary story that really sort of speaks uh, to the American mindset. Uh, in 2022, right in the era of Trump, we've got this. Um, we've we've got this. Um, we've got 330 million people who are really trying to choose sides because, again, there's a there's a material value to being white. Uh, and I just I just this is one of the most extraordinary stories I've come across in the last year. I think uh, the 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 candor with which they spoke, and, and also I'll say this, and no one, no one. Uh, uh, was in opposition to what the city council president was saying. They didn't correct her. They didn't stop her. They didn't challenge her. They were very much in agreement. And and again, it was the the head of the labor federation. Think about that. A, a guy who uh, uh, works with the workers at LA, and he's on board with this. This is really just extraordinary. I mean, it really um, it really begs for a broader conversation about you know. Um, the role that black people are expected to play in the American society going forward. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, <clears throat> with the uh, sort of, I mean, virulent racism that that we heard uh, uh, both uh, against black people and um, uh, indigenous folks, uh, Oaxacan as well, and, and her insults against Mexican immigrants is that Nuri Martinez is the first uh, Latin uh, president of uh, the council. And you make you make an important point. And, and this is something that I think we don't quite discuss enough here in the U.S. in terms of um, this issue, this 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 proximity to whiteness that that you're sort of describing, John, that um, I think different, uh, particularly in terms of uh, uh, immigrant groups that come to the United States out of an effort to assimilate and shield themselves from the worst of white supremacy are sort of comfortable in this kind of uh, uh, white adjacent uh, position, you know what I mean. I definitely think that there's a, a, a class aspect as well, and so out of an effort to access the benefits, that treasure chest of uh, benefits that that whiteness uh, uh, affords them, and the extent that they can approximate that either uh, physically, politically, or otherwise, then the closer that they can become to a uh, uh, quote-unquote success. And I think the fact that this happened in L.A., which, as you note correctly, is a pretty uh, ethnically diverse city, this takes on, I think, a whole other uh, color, quite literally. And the thing of it is, I was noting earlier the deep history of racism of uh, the city of Los Angeles and certainly uh, the state of California itself. I mean, we're talking about, when we talk about LA, we're talking about a city, you know, uh, uh, inter- that grapples with this history of, you know, genocide of indigenous people, colonialism, uh, Jim Crow apartheid, all these sorts of things. And there's also been resistance to that, I want to point out. I mean, the Zoot Suit riots of 1943, uh, the, the Watts riots, the Watts Rebellion, I should say, of 1965, the 1992 LA Rebellion, going all the way back to uh, 1785 with the uh, 
Toy Perinia Rebellion, which was led by an indigenous Keys woman, if I'm saying that correctly. Also, in terms of this racist history of L.A., we should never forget that uh, the L.A. Police Department and its modern incarnation, this infamous, legitimately one of the most infamous police departments in the country, was built by a guy named William Parker, an arch racist. And the way that he built the modern LAPD was to uh, purposefully recruit former Marines from the South who were experts in uh, uh, maintaining a violent racist power. And this is also the institution that pioneered the SWAT team as we knew it. And we know that not only it was it is a SWAT team employed to terrorize black and other poor and oppressed communities, it was also a tool of political repression against the Black Panthers. And so all of these different uh, historical threads flowing through this city, and I feel like I should also uh, uh, say on that note that just a couple of years Years ago, in uh, the, the summer of 2020, uh, Garcetti, the mayor uh, of L.A., they brought in the National Guard to back up the uh, LAPD and trying to suppress uh, the George Floyd protests that were happening in the city. And so, uh, you know, given all of that, John, I think it just sort of really pulls the mask, this 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 progressive veneer that a city like L.A. has. And I would argue there's a similar uh, progressive veneer here in um, uh, Washington, D.C. as well, except, you know, in our case, it's it's through this uh, a black leadership. You know what I mean? Here in the the former uh, chocolate city. And so uh, one thing that I that I also wanted to, to, to bring to the fore, as Josh here was just mentioning and uh, uh, Ricky Ryan was just mentioning in the um, uh, Biden means necessary chat about how this whole conversation that was recorded and released was happening within the context of uh, uh, housing and, and districting in uh, Los Angeles, right? And so it, it's kind of fright, frightening, frankly, to sort of have this reminder that these fundamental sort of core issues that impact people's lives, housing, districting, and things like that um, are, you know, in the hands of people like this. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I, I, this is, this conversation, it was very coarse, almost infantile, but it was about power, right? This is a, this is a, this was a conversation about power, who wields it and who won't, right? Just like government itself, uh, who gets what? And it, it, even as infantile as it was, it was very, um, um, uh, it was very much about who, you know, who holds power. And, and, and in that, you know, um, within that context, I mean, you have to sort of understand it as <clears throat> America in the 21st century, the United States of America is reorganizing to an extent, uh, almost predictive of, almost predictive of, of uh, Malcolm X's uh, prediction that America will have a riot someday. That it will, it will uh, result in another civil war, but it won't be black and white. It'd be rich and poor. I think that's largely correct. I don't. I don't think it is uh, entirely correct. I do think there's going to be some racial aspect to it, but <clears throat> to that to that extent, I would argue, having lived in California for several years previously, that this would have been a very different conversation if you talked to some very uh, uh, some working class Latinos, right, uh, in the Bay Area, in LA. It would have been a very different conversation. Now, I don't. I don't mean to say that there aren't racist Latinos in the working class community in Los Angeles, but there is much more of a sense of nuance and understanding. And many Latinos who understand that their fate is wrapped up with that of black people. And so 
just as an example, in California, in, in the Bay Area, in the Bay Area, about uh, 12 years ago, there were there were um, there was a construction site uh, in um, the black neighborhood in um, San Francisco, and the uh, there were there were Latino workers and there were black workers. The Latino workers ended up suing the developers because they said that they were being pitted against the black workers. And I believe they won. They might have settled out of court, but I believe they won. They said they were being invited to to meetings and the blacks weren't invited, and that and that they were there was a conscious effort to divide uh, one construction worker from another based on race. And they said I can't remember if this was actually in the lawsuit or if they just said it in interviews, but they said this was an attempt to recruit them to be white or white adjacent to be sort of part of this conspiracy to to uh, 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 undermine uh, black workers uh, and and black political power, and so you know this is a very different conversation. I think when we talk uh, 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 to the working class Latino community. Again, I, I very much believe that blacks are the most uh, loathed in American society, <clears throat> but it is a much more nuanced conversation um, at the bottom of the economic stratosphere as it is at the top. With as you see with the uh, uh, LA City Council President and Labor Federation President and other council members. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by John Jeter. And uh, John, U.S. President Joe Biden has said that he wants to reevaluate uh, Washington's relationship with Saudi Arabia uh, uh, following uh, OPEC deciding to uh, cut petroleum output, uh, a move uh, that will uh, certainly increase uh, fuel prices. And uh, Biden also saying that he's, you know, uh, that he may be open to uh, retaliatory measures that may may be proposed in Congress. And I I just got to say that this is pretty funny to me, this idea of Biden now feeling like uh, the U.S. needs to reevaluate its uh, relationship to Saudi Arabia. I mean, first of all, for a country like the United States, which is constantly uh, bleeding about how much of a champion it is for democracy and and human rights, the fact that here we have uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, a thoroughly undemocratic uh, system with with a reactionary monarchy uh, in charge, that wasn't enough to reevaluate the uh, relationship. The fact that, um, you know, I mean, they, they killed Jamal Khashoggi and Biden swore he was going to uh, make them a quote unquote pariah state. Uh, next thing we know, he was fist bumping uh, Ben Solomon like they were at a fish fry or something. So that wasn't enough to uh, 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 reevaluate the relationship. But now that they're messing with the oil and now that they're being perceived by Washington as being in cahoots with the Russian government under Vladimir Putin, 
Well, now they feel like they got to rethink things. You know what I mean? Not not Saudis, you know, a genocide, a war in Yemen. None of that. None of that was worthy of reevaluation. But when you mess with the oil, as far as the U.S. goes, you have gone too far. So, I mean, what, what do you make of this? And what do you think it signals sort of about our uh, geopolitical moment as certainly uh, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine is a part of this context? Uh, it's it's uh, just another nod to the absurdity of the American political class. I mean, uh, the United States reevaluating its relationship with Saudi Arabia is, is a bit like me reevaluating my relationship to, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Cassandra Wilson or, you know, uh, uh, some other uh, person I don't have a relationship with. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabia has moved on. Uh, they they are um, uh, clearly uh, moving towards the orbit of uh, Russia and the East China, and that's 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 already happening. That's in motion, and so <clears throat> this is just ridiculous that Joe Biden says that they're reevaluating the relationship. The, re- the the relationship has been reevaluated, and and uh, Saudi Arabia wants to. Uh, uh, if not break up, at least date other people, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, Joe Biden, they're clutching at straws. Um, we are becoming a multipolar, global political economy. There's nothing the United States can do to stop it. And, um, uh, you know, there are more and more transactions being, being made in uh, currencies other than the dollar, which means that the United States will lose political power with every additional transaction is made in a currency other than the dollar. Uh, there's nothing the United States can do to stop that. Uh, and so they're just clutching the straws. The, the only thing they have going for them, Sean, is that the American media, the American news media is completely complicit in this project to uh, hold on to power at whatever cost. And so uh, the, the, the American people writ large will never uh, be, be uh, made to understand that uh, the United States, as we've known it for really the last hundred years, is already over, uh, and that and that uh, we are again, like we just talked about with the uh, story out of LA, we're really trying to reorganize, and we don't really have the information to do that in a way that is progressive or productive, and so we're just becoming a more and more of a tribalized uh, nation state, and so uh, yeah, I mean Joe Biden. I mean, well, thankfully for him, I don't believe he's going to serve two terms. So uh, I think the American people will put him out of his misery. But it's just uh, it's a long slog to Gomorrah. That's what this is right now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I believe Joe Biden's going to uh, turn 80 years old soon uh, on uh, in, in November. I believe his birthday is November uh, uh, 20th. And, you know, it's uh, and also I was thinking about and I wanted your thoughts about this, too, um, John. Uh, uh, speaking of Biden, particularly as, you know, we're, we're heading ever more rapidly toward the, the, the midterms here in the U.S. and Biden trotting out this whole uh, uh, marijuana measure, which, you know, on its face seemed like it, it could have some kind of benefit. And uh, to my understanding, this will clear around, you know, 6,500 people who were convicted of a simple marijuana possession in uh, at the federal level. But no one will be released from prison like so 
solely due to this. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it was being presented as the kind of progressive um, sort of nonviolent drug offense measure that a lot of people have been advocating for for a long time. But I think ultimately, and I actually think this got exposed fairly early on, it really just seems like a transparent ploy, you know, to try to, you know, uh, drum up uh, uh, just a little bit of support before we get to the midterms. Now, we don't know, of course, what's going to be the outcome of these races just yet, nor do we know how things are going to shake out in 2024. But I, I do think that Joe Biden's track record as president up until this point by just, you know, I mean, at this point, we're looking at just a heaping pile of uh, broken promises um, on top of things like, uh, you know, giving $37 billion to the police, wanting there to be 100,000 more cops on the streets. I mean, even before he was president, he was shooting down progressive um, uh, 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 measures. I mean, if people remember, Biden said that even if a health care for all peace came across his desk as president, he wouldn't sign it. And so it's sort of like the Democrats don't have a whole lot to hang their hat on in terms of why people should, you know, go out of their way to vote for them outside of not being Republicans. And I just feel like uh, uh, we're likely to just sort of further descend into a political crisis here in this country. I I agree with every word, Sean. I, I don't have any crystal ball and I don't have any sort of inside knowledge. But here, if you ask me to guess to bet money, um, <clears throat> I would, I would, I, you know, my guess is that uh, Joe Biden uh, will not be the Democratic nominee in 2024. Uh, if you ask me to bet who it would be, I would say Michelle Obama and Gavin Newsom. That's just my guess. I don't know. Um, I think the Democratic Party clearly is moving away from Joe Biden. They understand he was a a caretaker. Uh, they really, uh, uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama was their ace in the hole. And really the only person they have now who could sort of retain this coalition of, 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 of Democratic voters without doing anything for them, the only person left they have who could actually hold that together is Michelle Obama. I don't see them running anybody else who could hold that kind of coalition together uh, where they can, you know, just get these liberals and black people to vote for them and don't deliver anything. Right. Um, and I don't think Michelle Obama can win, frankly, if, if they're running against <laughs> Trump and DeSantis. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Joe Biden is just I mean, this is a crazy thing to say about who is the most powerful man in the world. But he is a pathetic political figure. He always has been. But now as he ages, I mean, it's just an absurd figure. And I think I think many of the Democratic operatives are starting to see just how pathetic he is. And I, I, I'm guessing, I don't know this, I'm guessing there's some conversation. They clearly rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders. Uh, there's no way that uh, Joe Biden came from that far behind, so magically won all these primaries on Super Tuesday and after that. But I'm sure there's some conversation about maybe we should have rigged it for uh, uh, Senator Warren or someone else other than Joe Biden. He's just been um, n- not necessarily the worst president in our lifetime, only because he's so ineffective, but uh, perhaps the most embarrassing, I mean, certainly since Reagan, although Reagan was a much better communicator than Joe Biden is now, um, it's just a sorry state of affairs. We're in a very deep crisis in the United States. I don't think most people understand that we're in a very deep crisis. A lot of it is just our lack of political imagination 
And that is that is a result of uh, the radical black uh, uh, polity being marginalized and um, and drummed, exiled from the conversation. So we have no political imagination. We don't know how to address our problems. We can't even describe our problems, right? We still have, you know, all these people talking about, you know, uh, vote blue no matter who. You know, um, Senator Herschel Walker is a very real possibility, right? I mean, think about that for just a second, right? And it's because the Democrats are that uh, feckless. They are that unresponsive to their constitu- constituency, right? I mean, re- you know, Warnock should be embarrassed to have a race this close with a moron like Herschel Walker. But this is the state of the Democrats. You know, and I understand that uh, Dr. Oz is closing the gap in Pennsylvania. Um, this is, um, I, you know, I don't, I, don't I, I can't make predictions, but uh, the situation on the ground down in the United States looks very much like it did in uh, uh, Germany in 1932. Yeah, you know, and the, the Herschel Walker thing is, is kind of wild, right? Because you're right. The fact that this, I mean, he's like he's an ignorant bumpkin. Like I don't I don't know how else to to describe him. And he's going up against Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, a, a liberal, a black preacher who certainly we could uh, criticize. But the fact that someone like Herschel Walker has any shot against someone who's you know as legitimate in the bourgeois electoral sense as Warnock is pretty wild. And also, what's been interesting to see, of course, with all this controversy with Herschel Walker and his son and, and all those sorts of things, is that the Republicans clearly don't care, and, and that they're uh, without question going to um, continue to uh, support him through. This and uh, also, and I actually want to know what you think about this, um, John, uh, because I, I was it just popped in my head as you were discussing it. You probably saw that um, Tulsi Gabbard came out with this little video announcing that she's, you know, leaving the Democratic Party. And joining the Republicans because, you know, the, the Democrats are like anti-white wokist or, or whatever or something silly. And, you know, it just takes me back to 2016 when, you know, I feel like her star really started to rise. And I feel like people kind of uh, prematurely put her in a progressive box because she had some uh, anti-interventionist Tendency. She had some kind of uh, criticism of U.S. foreign policy, which really stands out when you're in a U.S. mainstream politic where that is verboten, where Democrat and Republican alike are basically in lockstep as it pertains to the operations of uh, U.S. imperialism. But, you know, I, I you know, I don't think that she was uh, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, that far, uh, quote unquote, left. Uh, you know what I mean? And so I, I'm wondering what you, you're sort of making of that aspect of things and the, and the Walker uh, piece as well, just in terms of, of the Republican side of things. I, I think and I have always thought that Tulsi Gabbard was and is a fraud. Uh, she had the correct opinion, the correct view on uh, the use of uh, America's military to secure, to procure uh, material and financial gain for a small number of uh, investors. But other than that, she was a horrible politician, an Islamophobe, I think we could say. Uh, clearly, she has some issues with Muslims. Um, and she's, you know, the, the idea that what, that what bedraggles our country 
is wokeism, right? Is I mean, it's to it's to mark yourself as a fraud, right? Uh, the idea that by you know uh, uh, heeding uh, 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 the, the 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 warnings of of, of blacks and other uh, dispossessed and marginalized people, that that somehow is what is wrong with that. I mean, it's just not. You're not a thinking person, right? And so, uh, you know, I think of I think of Tulsa Gabbard when I think of pretty much everyone. Uh, I might you know make some exceptions for someone like Bernie Sanders, who I, who again I don't think is. Uh, any kind of model, but I think he at least understands the issues, even though he doesn't have the courage to fight for them. But he is, I, I think Tulsa Gabbard is, is, is representative of our political class, which is a, a cesspool of mediocrity. And by medi- mediocrity, I'm being very kind. Uh, Kamala Harris is me- mediocre. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, anyone in uh, on Capitol Hill Anyone inside the Beltway, anyone in Washington D.C. who is um, who rises above the the level, the standard of mediocrity, uh, and Tulsi Gabbard is no different. Yeah, and, and even when you raise Bernie Sanders, it's funny that he comes up because you know I think it was just yesterday. Uh, you know, someone was showing me this this video I'd forgot all about, and it was this smash cut of uh, mainstream media uh, pundits and presenters giving their reaction to uh, Bernie Sanders when he uh, won Nevada back in 2020. And man, I mean, you would have thought that Bernie Sanders had a nuclear weapon pointed at the White House or something. They say, oh, he's trying to, he wants to destroy America. He's an anarchist. I mean, just straight up demonizing uh, uh, this man. You know what I mean? For having what is basically a, a, a pretty moderate social democratic program. And to me, it, it just signals how far to the right politics have gone in the United States. And they've been steadily moving right in my lifetime, at least since uh, uh, Bill Clinton and, and all of that. You know what I mean? And so it, it, it I think... Speaks to a couple of things. Number one, like I say, the the, the deep sort of right wing nature of politics in the U.S. in uh, uh, general also, I think, sort of reminds us of the deep uh, anti-socialism and anti-communism that I would argue is almost a uh, unofficial religion in the United States. And I think it also shows how this corporate owned media apparatus in the U.S. is clearly beholden to the interest of the ruling class that indeed owns and operates it and therefore will go to any length to uh, uh, suppress anything that is outside the uh, uh, acceptable political boundaries. You know what I mean? And so what I think uh, that means for us here on the ground, particularly as movement people, is that we have to be about the business of building uh, uh, the vehicle that is going to, you know, bring about the real change, to build a movement, a working uh, class movement uh, across lines of of division that is going to be the force that really fights for all of these things. Because to me, particularly when we talk about socialism, I, I don't think, I don't even think it's really appropriate in this context to talk about socialism if it's not in the context of a revolution in the United States. Socialism cannot just mean 
a raft of progressive measures, right? And so what are the popular progressive measures? Um, living wage, certainly. Health care for all, totally. Uh, uh, canceling student debt, yes. All of that and more. And I should also say that we absolutely should fight for these things right here, right now, because if they were to be achieved, they would improve the conditions of our class. But as we see under this system, like with abortion rights and now with this uh, attack on uh, uh, voting rights, is that these rights, these, these, these things that people literally bled and died for, the, these hard-won rights can still be taken away. And so there has to be a, a, a situation, a society, Society and a system to where these things are ensconced uh, uh, in a, uh, a society and are not so easily taken it away. And I'm and I feel that the ruling class is very sort of aware of that. And as such, it has to attack anything that even uh, approximates that kind of thing. You know, I, I agree completely, Sean. Uh, as usual, I, I um, you, you know, it's 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 very much like the. Uh, storied, uh, uh, legendary uh, Italian theorist uh, Antonio Gramsci wrote, right? It, it's culture is the way that the ruling class uh, maintains control, even more so than weaponry and guns. It's this culture. We don't have in the United States an intellectual tradition in the United States, and even less so now because the, the black, uh, the radical black policy has been squeezed from the, from the, from the conversation. And so people just don't have, they can't, they can't engage you in a conversation the way you and I can talk. And many of the people that we know in the activist community can sort of have this conversation. But beyond that, people just can't engage you. I'll just tell you a very quick story. Just moved back to D.C., Sean, and I was at a Starbucks. I know I shouldn't have been there, but I was. I wanted coffee. <clears throat> and these two young women, black women, young women, um, they were behind the counter, and you could tell. I, that's something that's amazed me is that every Starbucks I've been to, been nothing but black women. I don't think I've seen a white person yet behind the counter. I, I went outside to drink my coffee, and these two women followed. And they're complaining, and they're they're just describing this sort of atrocious overwork, how they've been overworked uh, almost atrociously, egregiously, and they're describing this to some each other sitting right next to me. So finally, I say, you know, what do you you guys think? Maybe you should organize, like you know, the other. Starbucks are doing, you know, you see that happening across the nation. Maybe you should make a call and see how you can organize, right? This woman, young woman, right? She could have been my daughter. She looks at me with this fear in her. Well, no, it's, it's a look of confusion and fear. She doesn't know what I mean by organize. She has no idea that there are other Starbucks that are organizing. And she's just defensive. She says, well, I don't know. I don't really. Yeah, I heard about that, but I don't, I don't know if that will work here. I don't. And she clearly, she doesn't know what she doesn't know, and she doesn't want to admit that she doesn't know. Now, I've been 22, 23, which is what I guess she was, and there are plenty of things I didn't know. <clears throat> but in my defense, I was always willing to learn, right? Like, if, you're, if you don't know, the only way to sort of uh, to compensate for that is by learning. Uh, and so this is, I think, what we've lost. We just don't have that kind of radical imagination anymore that will help people address their their discontent, their dispossession. Um, and even, you know, you think these are young black women. That was the heart of the labor movement in uh, the, the, the 1940s and 50s when the Congress of Industrial Organizations was organizing the, the economy. That was the, the heart of the uh, black power and civil rights movements. 
and and now today we have these children. I know this doesn't speak for every black woman, young black woman in the country, but they were workers and they didn't understand the the means that were available to them to address their uh, working conditions. And so, yeah, I mean, we're we're in really bad shape. I don't think people really understand the extent of it. Uh, it it's it's uh, it's this lack of the, the the failure of international uh, intellectual resources. Right, we don't have these kind of intellectual resources to draw upon. And 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 and, and th- th- finally, I'll say this. And again, you say it's the media that's complicit. That's exactly right. Uh, I was watching CNN this morning, and it struck me, and I've thought this before, but I guess it's kind of reaffirmed it. They're not even doing any reporting anymore, right? Like, I, I started as a reporter in, in, in 1987, basically. Uh, and the, the, the job was to interview someone, right, and then interview someone else, at least, who thought differently or who might have a different perspective, and then write a story. They're not doing that anymore. They're interviewing uh, the people who are in power, the establishment, the same old people over and over again, <laughs> and they don't write a story. That that's journalism today, right? It's not interrogation, it's not reporting. It's just uh, uh, they just basically scribble down what someone else tells them to write. So that's why what they're saying about Ukraine. If you go and listen to uh, any alternative sources, the Duran is particularly good. Richard Methurst is particularly good on YouTube. You will get a completely different narrative than what you'll get from CNN and MSNBC, right? Uh, if you listen to them you and you understand, regardless of what you think, Vladimir Putin's speech about two weeks ago where he basically broke ties with the West is breathtaking, right? It, this this is the Rubicon, right? Basically, the, 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 uh, the second... The country with the second most uh, nuclear weapons basically broke ties, broke relationships with the West, right? So, you know, and, and you'll learn, too, if you if you go to these alternate, alternate sources where they actually do report it, that, that Germany, the largest economy in Europe, is deindustrializing, right? They don't have enough gas because they've cut off the supply, or Russia's cut off the supply to, to, to Germany. They don't have enough gas, natural gas, to actually fuel production, right? They are a, uh, a ma- still a manufacturing country, uh, but they won't be much longer. This is devastating, right? But in the United States, we don't know these facts because the media won't give them to us. They won't give us the information we need to inform our own democracy. So, um, yeah, we're it's just sort of a it's a perfect storm, and I just uh, it's it's uh, it's frightening to see. Definitely. We're going to go to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 2 
0252-113-20. I am here. John Jeter is here. And John, a moment ago, you were uh, talking about uh, this, this situation you saw with the two young ladies working at Starbucks here in D.C. And uh, I know recently you published a piece on your uh, uh, Patreon entitled uh, Chocolate City, Ground Zero for the White Settlers Reclamation Project. And in this very interesting way, you you sort of make uh, comparisons between the current state of uh, gentrified D.C., how you remember it the last time uh, you lived here, which was a a little while ago, and your experience in a post-apartheid South Africa. So, you know, I'm definitely interested in hearing more uh, about this as someone who's lived here uh, for a few years. Certainly that gentrification process was well underway uh, when I got here and has only intensified since. Yeah, it was... um... I hadn't planned on writing that piece until I touched down and it just became immediately recognizable to me that what was Chocolate City when I moved here in 1993, uh, what was Chocolate City? And of course, that was not perfect. Poverty was still very much of the rule even then. But uh, Chocolate City has become an apartheid city, very much like Johannesburg or Cape Town, where you see black people waiting on waiting hand and foot serving white people, right? Uh, the Chocolate City, I remember, downtown, you would see upwardly mobile black people who were participating in the in the economy in, at high levels, right? There were clearly people, not just journalists, but lawyers and uh, uh, all sorts of professionals who worked on Capitol Hill, who worked in these businesses, who worked in lobbying firms, you know, and not all obviously were productive or even on our side as black people. But for the most part, there was something to aspire to. That doesn't exist here in, in Chocolate City anymore, right? Chocolate City was, I think, about 64% black. When I moved here in 1993, I think now it's down to about 45%, which is almost the same as the white population. And it's um, it's devastating to see. It's almost like visiting the ruins of Pompeii. Uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, I don't think... Uh, cities like New York and Chicago and San Francisco are prettier cities because they have, you know, rivers and mountains and and oceans, you know. But the housing stock, the architecture, the built environment is not any more beautiful anywhere than in Washington, D.C., right? But you black people can't afford them anymore, right? So um, you see this happening everywhere. But what you have to understand is that Chocolate City was the stronghold of black militancy, Right. Uh, and when I say black militancy, what I all I'm all I'm saying is that you know black people being afforded an opportunity to actually participate in their governance. That's all it was, right? Uh, that's the that's the legacy of Marion Barry. You know, young people think of him as just the guy who got caught smoking crack. Marion Barry was the most transformative mayor, uh, I, I would argue, of the of the 20th century, right? Uh, you know, he he uh, when he entered when he entered office in 1979, there were 3% of all federal contracts went to minority firms. And when he left office, I think the first time in 1991, it was 40%, right? That's transformative, right? That's wealth, right? That he actually uh, expedited for black people. And that expands buying, right? It's not just about black people, it's about an economy that functions correctly. That's over now, right? And so Chocolate City has really become an apartheid city uh, of white wealth, black labor, uh, uh, black people serving, uh, white people, uh, not quite as gardeners and maids as they did in apartheid South Africa, but still very much in the service sector and not working in jobs where they have 
uh, an opportunity to amass wealth, to build wealth. You can't. You, there's no way in the world you can afford a home in Washington, D.C. working at Starbucks. You can work uh, you, you work 24 hours a day and you won't make that kind of money. So it's just um, it's a transformation that even in my age is stunning to see. Yeah. And, you know, what you're saying about uh, uh, Miriam Berry and this uh, uh, black political power that D.C. was the nerve center on. I mean, that that is precisely why he's the mayor for life. And I don't think people outside of D.C. understand there is nothing that you can do or say to make the the, the black Washington uh, feel uh, negatively about Marion Barry. They will love him forever because they felt their conditions um, improve under him. And, and it really is just that simple. This is why they're so uh, willing to forgive him uh, when he has all of these different issues. And uh, you also noted, as people uh, who know this history often do, John, about how this process um, was really kicked off in earnest under uh, Mayor Anthony Williams and uh, how he was really the he was the mayor of the real estate world. And so he was the one that sort of had to who really opened the floodgates, if you will. Now, if you you know, if you look up recent interviews with Anthony Williams, he's like, oh, man, I was such a fool. I would do it so differently if I could do it again. But I mean, anyone who really knows what it is knows that that was clearly the role that uh, he was supposed to play and that uh, that's what really got the ball rolling uh, to where we have uh, this version of uh, the once chocolate city. Yeah, I remember I was I think I was about to go to South Africa when Williams was elected. I remember thinking it was so curious that he said that we want to recruit childless couples to Washington, D.C. I just thought that's an odd construction. Number one, if they're childless, there's not uh, any kind of generational uh, pull. There's no children. And that you would recruit. I, I have no issue with, you know, who grown people want to sleep with. But you're clearly calling for gay people uh, as sort of your target, your base, your constituency. I just thought that was so odd. But, of course, that is, you know, most people, I think, recognize that as the uh, the the camel's nose under the the, the, the tent pup uh, tip, uh, pup tent of gentrification, right? And that's what he was thinking. I, I didn't really understand that at the time, right? I, I, you know, I guess because I'm not that devious. But it's um, and of course, you know, it's happened everywhere, right? So it's it's really a European settler reclamation project, right? Detroit is similar, Oakland is similar. Um, you know, Chicago never had a uh, black majority, uh, or even cl- close to it, right? But still, this 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 sort of uh, taking back the city from uh, at least those corners that were sort of carved out by the Harold Washington administration. Um, uh, that's going on all over the country, right? In cities that are predominantly black or, or close to a black majority, it's happened all over the country. But it's most stunning to see here in Washington D.C. because, of course, as I said, this was the stronghold, and it reminds me of something else too, Sean. Which is that, you know, when uh, the, the the you can make an argument that the Black Power Movement actually began, or or maybe the Black Liberation Movement, that's a better way to put it, that it actually began in 1931 with the Scottsboro Boys, right? When the communists were looking to sort of uh, 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 launch this worldwide movement for the workers, and they hooked up with blacks over the Scottsboro Boys case, the nine young black men who were on a train got in a fight with some white boys and were arrested for raping these two young uh, white women, sex workers, falsely arrested, charged, convicted. 
Uh, and the Communist Party helped Blacks sort of really sort of tell their story, what, really what their purpose was. Well, they, they chose Alabama because that was the stronghold of white supremacy. Um, and, and I just think it's so ironic that now, you know, the, the white settler in his reclamation project chose Chocolate City because it was the stronghold of black power. And so it's just, uh, I, 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 I seldom disagree with Mark Twain, but I think he got it wrong. Uh, history doesn't, uh, history does rhyme. It doesn't just repeat itself. Um, it, you know, or history does repeat itself. It doesn't just rhyme. So, uh, yeah, I just, uh, it's stunning to see. It really is. Yeah, and I think certainly, um, uh, you know, in the conversation of gentrification, there was a very purposeful effort to bring uh, uh, childless people uh, here to uh, D.C. Certainly that that appears to be the case as it uh, is today. And even in terms of the LGBTQ community, if you look at some of the historical uh, historic gay neighborhoods in D.C., like DuPont Circle, it's still a, a largely gay neighborhood, but you got to be rich to live there now. So it's, you know, it, it, it there's clearly sort of a, uh, a deep class shift in D.C. And to this very day, as we speak, uh, D.C.'s uh, working class, uh, D.C.'s poor class are black people, and these are, by and large, black families. As I'm sure you're aware, uh, uh, John, a part of sort of the landscape and culture of black D.C., for instance, are these, you know, homes that people pass down from grandparents to to, to, to child and things like that, and it's sort of a, a point of pride. But these are the people that are, that, that are pushed out, and, you know, as someone who's been involved with different housing struggles in D.C., one of the main things you always hear is that these developers want to knock down buildings and build up these these units that aren't fit for families. And so if if you have one, well, then you're sort of a, a, a forced to find housing elsewhere. And so these uh, sort of interlocking issues of race, class and uh, power impacting Washington, D.C. and the country, even in my little hometown in, in the Florida panhandle, we're seeing housing prices skyrocket as the United States is becoming a, a two expensive to live in. And so we're seeing the contradictions of this capitalist capitalist system and thus must organize to overthrow it. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Well, thank John Jeter so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.